0: book of Exodus in the 34th chapter. Now we are in the middle of a five-part series entitled, What is the Gospel? And it's uh, really the inspiration of this came for a book that our staff read together by that same title by a man named Eric Gilbert, who's from East Texas and is a wonderful communicator. And uh, I thought so highly of this little book. Uh, we purchased a copy for all of our deacons and they went through it. And then we had a discipleship class here in which 60 or 70 of you have gone through that class. And uh, we felt like it was something that everyone in the church needed to hear. And so these uh, sermons are based on some chapter headings that are in that book. And of course, they're based on the Word of God, more importantly. And at the end of this series, you're going to receive a copy of that book. hope you'll take it home and uh, read it. But more importantly, that you would implement into your life the principles that are in it. And so the idea is that every member of First Baptist Church of Keller could simply and succinctly articulate the gospel message to anyone who they have the opportunity to speak it to. And it's based on four simple questions and four simple answers. The first question is, to whom are we accountable as human beings? If anyone, do we owe anything to a creator? Second question is, why is humanity in trouble? I told you last week, it's not hard to convince people we are anymore. It's obvious we are. What's the source of that problem? Third, what has God done about that problem? And fourth, how do we get in on that solution? And so today is the first question, to whom we are accountable. Specifically, the title of this message is, to the God to whom we are accountable. And it's taken from our text, Exodus chapter 34, verses 6-8. Let's read it now. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses made haste to bow low towards the earth worship. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this his word. So the answer to those four questions is found we said last week in the Bible. To whom are we accountable? God. Why are we in trouble? Ourselves. Man. What has God done about it? Christ. He sent Christ to die in our place. How do we get in on that? Our response? Faith. Simple trust and belief in Jesus. Now The text I just read, it probably will help you for me to set the context. Many of you may know that the book of Exodus is the history of how God led his chosen people Israel through Moses out of Egyptian bondage into the promised land. It took 40 years of them wandering in the wilderness and they repeatedly stiffened their neck and were stubborn. They disobeyed God, but God was faithful and brought them where he intended to take them. But as they wandered in the wilderness, Moses, their leader, was called upon a mountain to receive from God direct revelation, specifically the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. But the people waiting down in the valley became impatient. Moses has placed his brother Aaron in charge while he was away. He didn't say how long he would be gone. But the people began to perceive something bad. had happened to Moses. They grew impatient. And so uh, Aaron panicked. What was he going to do? So he said, here's what you do. Tear off your earrings and your golden bracelets and give them to me. And he melted them down and he created an idol, a golden calf, similar to the ones that they had worshipped and seen in Egypt. And the scripture says, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, that is, they worshipped the calf and in like manner as they had seen done by the pagans in Egypt, they associated the worship of that God with sinful practices. And God took notice. In fact, he pointed it out to Moses as he was up on the mountain communicating with him. And Moses got angry. And as he went down back into the valley and saw what was going on, he threw down those tablets that God had given him with the law written on it and broke them. And so for some period of time, uh, they were in a position of not knowing what was going to happen next. Moses vacillated from thinking that the people should just all be killed, to interceding on their behalf. And Moses was a human like us, right? He had emotions like us, and he got angry. But he always came back to that point of knowing that his job was to intercede on behalf of the people. In fact, he said to God, if you won't forgive these people, just kill me too, right? So eventually, God called him up on the mountain the second time to give him the law again. And uh, this is what's recorded happened next. God passed in front of him, and then God spoke to him and told him exactly what he was like and what he expected from his people. That's the first point I want to make for the text today. God is self-revealing. That is, humanity would never come to know him or his plan had God not written it down for us. See, God is not hiding from us. God is not watching from heaven, rubbing his hands together, waiting for us to mess up. He's not ready to cast thunderbolts down. He's not ready to drop grand pianos on our heads like we see on the cartoons. God is intimately involved in the lives of his creatures. But we would not know about him unless he told us. And he's revealed himself to us in two broad categories, theologically speaking. One is what we call natural or general revelation. Natural, the root word is nature. That is, God through nature, what he has made reveals that he's powerful And he's brilliant, right? Ever looked at a green leaf under a microscope? God is incredibly creative and he's powerful. Only God can create life. Man's been trying to do it forever. He always falls short. Now all man can do is take what God's already created and rearrange it in beautiful and artistic ways, but he really creates nothing. Only God can do that. But then there's the second kind of revelation, which is uh, our topic today, special revelation. The Bible is God's special revelation. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, is God's special revelation. Now I said natural revelation is sometimes called general revelation because it's available generally. That is, anyone in the world, believer or not, is uh, privileged to be a part of God's natural revelation that he can perceive through his senses. We open our eyes if we have eyes and sight and we see God's creative beauty and genius Even if we no longer can see, we can feel warmth and cold and wet and dry through the sense of touch. We can smell wonderful food cooking, makes us hungry. See, all these things we can perceive through our senses are what we call general revelation. We know we didn't create those things. There's one greater than us that did. But to know the specifics, what God's name is, what his attributes are, what he wants from his creation, all of that is found in his special revelation, the Bible, part of which was given to Moses. In fact, the first five books of the Bible were given to Moses, which he wrote down, which tells us how we got here, what God's plan is, how the world got in a mess. Now, because he does reveal himself in those ways, we can know without any shadow of doubt who God is, what he's like, and what he demands of us. Number one, he is our creator. Genesis chapter 1 reveals that, right? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And then he began to create things day after day. And on the sixth day, he created his highest creature, man. But not only that, God communicated with man. It's not as, as some say, he wound the world up like a child's toy and walked away disinterested. He's not. He's involved in his creation day by day. And so he's our creator. Therefore, we owe to him certain things. We owe to our Creator obedience. Verse 1 says, The Lord passed in front of him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God. What it really says in the Hebrew is Yahweh, He is Yahweh, which is very similar to what Jesus said in the New Testament, I am that I am, the self-existent one. He condescended to come down to us to reveal to us who He is. Remember Paul said, to the church at Corinth, that what philosophers have been trying to do forever is to bring God down to them or else exalt themselves to heaven. And those efforts all fail. The only way we know God is if he'll condescend to come down to us and he did in the past and he did that most specifically in the person and work of Jesus. And what follows next in these verses is God's eyewitness account of himself. We were talking about being a witness last week, and I said there are three basic kinds of witnesses, right? Uh, You can be a character witness, uh, or you can be an expert witness, but the best kind of witness is an eyewitness. Well, here is God giving testimony, not to someone else or some circumstance to which he has knowledge. He is saying in his own words, in his own voice, this is who I am. It's essential to know who God is. It's essential to know what he's like and what he requires, In fact, he states in the first two of those Ten Commandments that he gave Moses that he's to be communicated with and thought about and worshipped in very specific ways. First, he says, there's no other God above me. I'm the one and only. And the second is, don't create images and call them me. And that's what the people did. See, they wanted something they could see, hear, taste, and touch. God says he's a spirit. And when they saw that calf, they said, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. Wouldn't you be insulted with that? If you were the omnipotent, omniscient, eternal creator of all things and the people reduced you to livestock. That's what they did. God didn't like it. and He doesn't like it today. We must worship the right God in the right way. You say, well, pastor, we don't have idols here in Keller, Texas. Oh, yes, we do. You see, the essence of idolatry is not just melting down some metal and making an image or cutting down a tree and carving an image out of wood. The essence of idolatry is believing and thinking the wrong things about the true God. And that happens every day in this city. See, the Israelites were claiming to be worshiping the right God, but they worshiped Him the wrong way. So God says, you want to worship me? Here's who I am. And He begins to list His attributes. He says in verse seven or 6, rather. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquities, transgressions, and sins. Here's a list of some of God's attributes. Now, I hasten to say some because we should never assume that we know everything there is to know about God. I say it like this We have in our Bibles everything He wants us to know about Him, right? And it's enough to know how to live a life that pleases Him. So what is an attribute? I've said that word a couple of times already today. Well, an attribute is a quality or a feature about someone or something that is an inherent part of them. That is, you cannot rightly describe them or define them for another person without using this attribute or this characteristic. And so we can't truly say we've described God, who he is, unless these things are communicated. And so I said it's incredibly important to understand those attributes. How important is it? Well, here's how important it is to me. I was reminded this week that uh, 17 years ago today on Mother's Day, I preached my first sermon as your pastor here. And so I preached a Mother's Day sermon, and then for the next eight weeks, my first sermon series with you, I preached a series on the attributes of God, His omnipotence, His omniscience, His eternality, His holiness. Because I wanted to communicate to you who I believe God to be, and I wanted you to know as we were going to study verse by verse through many books of the Bible in the intervening 17 years that this is who God has revealed himself to be. And We want to worship and think about the right God in the right way. And my prayer is that has been communicated these 17 years and it will be as long as the Lord allows us to be together. But isn't it interesting in this particular list of God's attributes that he's deciding to reveal to himself to Moses who he is and what he's like that he begins with his benevolence rather than his wrath. Now remember, what is the circumstance? Moses is trying to convince him not to kill everybody (laughs) because of their sin. And God doesn't say, Moses, let me remind you, I hate sin, and I'm angry, and I must punish sin. That's true of God, but he doesn't lead with that. He leads with, I'm compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. See, Moses isn't reminding God about anything. God's reminding Moses of some things. And he says, our second point, he's gracious and merciful. See, grace is God's unmerited favor, getting something good, a blessing that you have not earned and you don't deserve. Now, the other side of that coin is mercy. Mercy is God's compassionately withholding punishment that we have earned and we richly deserve. In fact, God here in these verses gives us five descriptive words and phrases that tell us who he is and what he's like. Number one, he's compassionate. That Hebrew word is hesed, which is loving kindness. It speaks of a parent's love for a child. I hope you have the same mental image of your childhood that I have. When I think of mothers and Mother's Day, I think of a compassionate, loving person, someone who is nurturing, who understood that I was weak as a child and I needed her assistance. That's the Hebrew word here. One who is strong, having compassion over one who is weak. That's how God views us. He's not ready to drop an anvil on your head. He's compassionate to your weakness. He is gracious that he's he's disposed to bless rather than curse you. Thirteen passages in the Old Testament describing God's graciousness. Here's a couple of them. Deuteronomy 4.31, for the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He would not fail you or destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. Nehemiah 9.17, and did not remember your wondrous deeds, which he had performed among them. So they became stubborn, speaking of their ancestors, and appointed a leader to return their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Psalm 86, 15, but you, O Lord, are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness and truth. That's not just God saying that about himself, though that would be enough. His testimony is more weighty than any of ours. But the experience of God's people is that has proven to be true in their own lives. He is slow to anger. And this is a great word in the Hebrew it means long of nostril. <laughs> you ever seen someone who's getting angry as you talk to them? What happens with their nostrils? They start to flare out, right? They get red in the face. It says it takes God a long time to flare his nostrils. He's patient with us. He has a long fuse as opposed to many of us who have a short fuse on our anger. He holds back his wrath, giving opportunity after opportunity for the sinner to repent. Let me give you three examples of this. One is right away in the Garden of Eden, right? God said to Adam and Eve, the soul that sinneth, it will what? Die. And yet they sinned, and God cast them out of the garden. But sometimes we forget he didn't kill them immediately. Did you know that Adam lived to be nearly a 1,000 years old? But he died, he's not here now, but God is gracious and kind and slow to anger. How about the Ninevites, these Assyrians? who were known for their bloodthirst and their brutality against other people, specifically the nation of Israel. And yet God looked at them and said, I'm going to destroy them for their violence. But he sent a prophet, Jonah, to them. Jonah didn't want to go because he wanted to see them die. He finally made it to Nineveh and said, God's about to destroy you. You notice that in Jonah, he doesn't offer them any hope. He just says, God's going to destroy you. And the king, a pagan, said, Let's repent in sackcloth and ashes. Perhaps God will relent if we'll repent. And, of course, God did. Why? Because the king of Nineveh figured it out? No, because this is God's nature. And Jonah knew that was his nature. That's why he didn't want to go to them, because he knew if they'd repent, God would forgive them. He didn't want that. He knew God was compassionate and slow of anger and long of nostril. But here's the greatest illustration. If you want to see an illustration that God is slow to anger, look in a mirror. Get real close to it, especially right after you've sinned. And if your breath can fog a mirror, you know that God is gracious. This Wednesday, we had our National Day of Prayer. We had a great group. And I was so blessed that our city fathers and officials came and spoke and blessed that event, gave us access to the inner chambers of the council. I preached a sermon on God's wrath in the Keller City Council Chambers. Lord bless Texas, right? Lord bless this city that we have those freedoms. But our mayor came and our chief of police came and the council members came and they said, what a blessing it is to live in this city that's safe and so many smart entrepreneurs who've done well in business, that we all have you know, a good place to live. And, and I agreed, I said amen to every bit of that. But when it came my time to speak, I, I said, I, I agree. I believe that the Lord has blessed us in a unique way here. But all of the blessings of our lives, and I'm including everyone in this room, especially me, have one thing in common. We don't deserve one of them, right? And when I said, fog your mirrors, if you want to see a manifestation of God's mercy, here's what I mean. Every time you and I sin and live another day, it's not a testimony to our goodness. It's a testimony to God's mercy. This is what he's saying to Moses. He is slow to anger. He abounds forthly in loving kindness and truth. That as he goes past what might be expected, he is not skimpy or miserly with his mercy and grace. One theologian I read this week says this means that he is exuberantly benevolent. He goes way beyond what we could even expect in our wildest imaginations. And he abounds not only in loving kindness, but in truth, which literally means in the Hebrew, faithfulness. That is, he keeps his word. The Bible says all the promises of God are true and trustworthy. He never changes his mind. He's immutable. He keeps that loving kindness to a thousand generations is literally what it says here, which means the promises that he made 2,000 years ago, he keeps even to this generation. And I take from that the same grace that was afforded and offered to the Israelites is available and afforded to all who would believe today. That same mercy that he showed them is available to us. Which tells us, fifthly, that he is a forgiving God. He says so. I forgive iniquities, transgressions, and sin." Now clearly those are all pretty close synonyms, but there's a little nuance of difference that God wants us to know about in the way he forgives. First of all, he says he forgives our iniquity. The root word of that means to twist. That is to take truth and water it down or add to it or make it not quite what it was intended to be. Here's how it plays out in our lives many times. God draws a clear line in the sand and says, there's my standard, Don't, don't cross that line we say well I see that line I don't want to do that so here's what I'm going to do I'm going to come right over here and I'm going to put my toenails right up against it and I'm going to lean over at the waist and put my nose across the line and say I'm fine we twist God's laws and make them something that's more convenient to us God says I forgive that kind of sin then he says he forgives our transgressions now here's a harsh word It means a willful choice to reject authority. God claims that he has authority in our lives, and we say we don't want that. Isn't that what Adam and Eve did? We don't want you over us, God. We want to be the captain of our own ship, the masters of our own destiny. That was sin. We do it a thousand ways today. And then there's just the word sin. It means to fall short. The Greek equivalent in the New Testament is harmatia. It's where Paul said in Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. We miss his mark. So you might say, well, I don't willfully violate God's transgressions. I try not to twist his standards. But all of us in some way and to varying degrees have fallen short of perfection. And you want to talk about good news, which as we said last week is what the word gospel literally means. Here's some good news. We've all sinned, but we have a forgiving God There is more to God, though, than his benevolence. That's important. God led with that. He gave five adjectives to describe his benevolence. But he doesn't stop there. We'd be wrong to stop there. Look at verse 7. Speaking of himself, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, semicolon, what's the next word? Yet. (laughs) Underline it. Highlight it. He's about to say something important. It's a transitional word. All of that is true, but don't forget this about me. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children, on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Now God's not going to punish you for your grandfather's sin. That's not what he's saying. But in a similar way that many of us had godly mothers whose legacy of faith helped us along the way positively. A lot of people have the opposite experience. Their ancestors were so sinful that they still have the consequence of their ancestor's sin in their life today. God's not judging them for that sin. They'll be judged on their own sin, but their circumstance in life, in many cases, is related to the sins of their ancestors. What he's saying, though, essentially, is that he's not like men. Don't ever forget that had a debate this week on text message with some of my pastor friends about whether or not we should ever try to depict God artistically. And we talked about make no graven image, the second commandment, and how to apply that. And I always remember about the little girl in Sunday school who was drawing a picture and her teacher said, what are you drawing, sweetheart? She said, picture of God. And she said, oh honey, we shouldn't do that. Uh, We don't know, no one knows what God looks like. And she said, They will after I'm finished. (laughs) But we need to have a biblical view of who God is, not the God of our imagination. The God of the Bible says he's not like us. And I think fundamentally what he means by that is that he hates sin all the time, doesn't he? He's not hot or cold to it. We are. We're capricious. Sometimes sin makes us angry. Sometimes we laugh at it. Sometimes in the same day. God's not like that. He must punish sin. He says he will by no means, that is in any circumstance, leave the guilty unpunished. I think there's a world of people out there who believe in God, and they know they're going to die one day, but they're counting on, he's not going to punish me. I'm going to be an exception to the rule. Friend, no you're not. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And that really gets to our third point today. Another attribute of God is that he is just. J-U-S-T. Just means behaving in agreement with what is right. Now, God does what is right not because he consults a book. God does what is right because he is the standard of justice and righteousness. And by nature, what he does is just. None of us are. Even though we might give lip service to justice and equity... None of us are perfectly. Only God is because He's the standard of it. And one of the things that makes God God is that He is perfectly just. He's not a respecter of persons. Now you think about our own judicial system, which I think is the envy of the world. It's not perfectly just. We read about all the time people who are sentenced to life in prison. New evidence comes forth 20 years later that exonerates them. And we apologize and we probably give them some financial compensation. There's nothing we can do because we're not God. We don't always do perfectly just, even when we uh, justice, even when we intend to. But God is omniscient. He knows all things. He always does what is right. And He says, "I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished." And that's bad news because how many of us are guilty? All of us. One lady just raised her hand over here. Y'all all too too. Yeah, all of us are. And I said when we started this series that we cannot fully understand, nor can your lost friends, understand the gospel message, the good news you're trying to convey to them, unless we set it against the black backdrop of sin. We have to tell the bad news before the good news makes sense. But when we set the good news that Jesus died for sinners against the backdrop of God's wrath, then it becomes good news. He's just. He must punish sin. That's the fundamental miscalculation of our generation from my perspective, that because God has not judged my sin yet, He will never. We have friends who've lived 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years with perfect health, seem like a blessed life, productive in their work years, wealthy, kids turned out okay, and they say, "Well." God must not care about my sin. And so they go into eternity with that miscalculation. Friends, do not presume on the grace and mercy of God. What I mean by by that is just because God has not judged your sin yet, don't take that to mean he will not. Take that as a sign that he's slow to anger. And he's given you another opportunity to, to repent. Let his kindness lead you to repentance. Don't make the mistake of the sinners of Noah's day who God said that he was about to destroy the world with water yet he gave them a hundred more years as Noah built that ark to repent but they did not. So the Bible teaches that all sin will be punished in one of two ways. For those who believe on Christ he becomes their substitute. He took their sin upon himself. He that knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And through faith in him God the Father's pleasure in the Son is transferred to us. His righteousness, which we have none of, is imputed to us. Our sin, which we have much of, is transferred to Him on the cross. And our sins are punished through Christ. Never to be punished again, by the way. On the other hand, if you reject Christ, your sins will still be punished. Only this time, you will face the punishment for that in hell. Say, Pastor, do you really believe in hell? Yes, I do. The Bible teaches it as a literal place. In fact, we're told how it's all going to play out. Take your Bible and turn quickly, please, to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation, of course, is that, the unveiling of the future through a person, John the Apostle. God allowed him to be transported supernaturally into his own throne room. And he told him to write down what he saw how he was going to end the world and how he was going to judge all flesh. In Revelation 20, verse 11, we read this. This is what John writes. Then I saw a great white throne and him who seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by that which was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So he says the books, plural, were opened and all flesh was judged, great and small. He's not talking about heavy and skinny. (laughs) He's talking about those who were perceived during their lifetime to be important, the great men of the world. And the small, those whose lives were comparatively insignificant according to human standards. God says the ground is very level at his throne. All of us will face his judgment, great or small. And he opened books. Plural. and in those books were written the deeds of our lives whatever we had done that is sins were recorded so that every mouth would be stopped Paul said in Romans we would know and we would be in agreement with the assessment of our lives and the Bible teaches those books are there because there will be degrees of punishment in hell now the specifics of that I don't know and I don't want to know I don't want to experience any part of hell do you But then he said after the books were opened, the book, singular, was opened. The book of life. And whoever's name was not written in the book of life was cast into hell. Now, how do you get your name in the book of life? It's not by being better than your neighbor. It's not by being above average even. It's not by being in the 98th percentile of humans. You get your name in the book of life through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith in what he's done. And whoever's name is not written in the book of life will be punished for their own sins. This is the bad news. The good news is you don't have to be punished for your own sins. (laughs) When you go out and talk to your neighbors and why it's important to talk to your neighbors, yes, you have to tell them they're a sinner bound for hell. They might not like that. But you tell them that out of love and then you need to say, in whatever way the Lord leads you to, You don't have to go that way. God has made a way of escape for you. He has made a way to be reconciled with him. He has made a way for you to go to heaven and not hell. And that one way is through faith in Christ alone. This is the gospel. And and when they come to realize that, they will also come to realize what you know if you've been born again, is that God is holy What did Moses do in response to God's self-revelation? Look at verse 8. we will just hear it because I turned you to revelation, didn't I? He says this in Exodus 34, 8. After God had revealed who he is to Moses, Moses made haste. He got in a hurry to do something. To bow low towards the earth in worship. When we come to understand God, who he is and what he's like, our reaction won't be... Look at me, God. Don't you need me on your team? What was Isaiah's response when he saw the Lord high and exalted in his throne filling the temple? He went down on his face and says, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He worshiped. And you know a person has come face to face with the Lord and their own sinfulness when their reaction is humility rather than pride. That is the first step to salvation, is contrition over sin. Lord, have mercy. What hope do we have that when we ask God for mercy that he'll grant it? His word, his self-revelation. What's the first thing he said about himself? I am gracious and merciful, slow to anger, ready to forgive every kind of sin. That is the basis that will give you boldness to share the gospel message and answer the question to your lost and dying friend what is the gospel tell them to run to Jesus because he has died in their place on the cross and he's ready and willing to forgive them of all their sins and give them a home in heaven let's thank the Lord for that truth Heavenly Father I thank you for your word I thank you that you are exactly who you say you are you're merciful and kind and slow to anger you're gracious you're disposed to bless rather than curse Lord I have experienced it in my own life so many times where I have sinned sometimes willfully and I've lived to see another day not because I deserved it because you're gracious Lord help us never though to live another second of life thinking that we don't deserve your wrath we know we do so Father, every person we know does. Any of them living in blissful ignorance of the reality that their names are not in the book of life. And if they died today, they'd spend eternity in hell. Lord, we don't wanna become apathetic or even ambivalent about the eternal destiny of our neighbors. Break our hearts, burden us for the lost. Equip us this month, Father, through these sermons to answer these most important questions of life. The one we've examined today is to whom are we accountable? We're accountable to Jehovah God, the self-revealing one who created us and has told us who he is and what he's like and what he expects, us, expects of us. We've all fallen short of that expectation. And Father, that's the bad news, but we have the good news, the keys to the kingdom, that Jesus died for sinners. Help us not to keep those keys in our pocket to share it with the lost and dying world and we'll leave the results to you and we give you thanks in advance for what you'll do in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.